welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. An open access article in the March 2019 issue presents an approach to refine European regulation of pesticides that have endocrine disrupting properties. Today we're speaking with lead author Mark Crane to learn more. Mark is an environmental toxicologist at AgHera in the UK. Hi, Mark. Thanks for chatting with us today. Hi, Jenny, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to, to join you. Can you start off by telling us what your motivation was for writing this paper? Well, I'm an environmental consultant, and I was asked by ECPA, which is the European Crop Protection Association, to help them develop a technical solution to a problem that they were facing, which was that the European Commission has come up with a new regulation to try to look at the effect of pesticides that might have endocrine active properties. The problem that ECPA had was that uh, the regulation stipulates that this needs to be a hazard rather than a risk-based approach and that what the main focus of the assessment should be is effects on populations of organisms. And as you know, we tend not to look at whole populations of organisms in our laboratory tests. And so that's why we ended up trying to develop an approach that met with the spirit of the regulation whilst also coming up with a, a technically feasible solution. I'm certainly not claiming that we have a complete solution. We, I hope, are a few steps along the path towards a solution with, uh, with this paper that we published. So the approach in the paper pretty much relies on population modeling, uh, which require quite a bit of information for accuracy. So now what happens when you have a species that's not thoroughly evaluated? Yeah, well, that will be most species, of course. And we have a problem now in uh, already in um, carrying out both hazard and risk assessments in that we tend, on the aquatic side, for example, to rely on water fleas and fish and algae, and then we extrapolate from rather uh, a, a small selection of species in the laboratory to everything that might be exposed out there in the environment. So the approach that we're proposing is, uh, is one that's fairly conservative um, and already in Europe is used to a certain extent with birds and with mammals. And that is to, to choose a focal species to generate sufficient data about that species uh, so that we can actually populate a population model and to go with that then as a representative species for all of that group of organisms that we might seek to protect. So, for example, in Europe, we use a bird called the skylark as uh, a focal species. And uh, individual-based population models have already been developed to quite a level of sophistication to help us understand what effects on different population parameters might have overall on the abundance and the age profile of skylight populations in uh, agricultural landscapes. So you touched a little bit about uncontrollable environmental factors that could uh, could have an impact on the population. Yeah. You and your co-authors talk about how resistance and resilience can actually mitigate some adverse effects on population abundance, but what happens when you get these large, unpredictable environmental occurrences that uh, that could put a population at risk? In the case of pesticides, I think that we do have a reasonably reliable monitoring 
system that should pick up on the majority of routine exposures under predictable circumstances. And the way in which we try to deal with the slightly more extreme circumstances that, that might conceivably occur is that we've tried to make the approach pretty conservative. So, for example, we uh, have identified that focal species should be ecologically vulnerable. In other words, they should be the sorts of species that if there were to be uh, an unexpected event, would be the ones most likely to suffer a reduction in population abundance or a change in their, um, in their age profile. What we've also done is uh, we stipulated that the sorts of environments that should be modelled should be reasonable worst case as well. And again, as you'll know, when you start putting together a reasonable worst case with another reasonable worst case, arguably you end up with quite an unreasonable worst case. So we're trying to build a certain level of conservatism into the whole process here. But I'm certainly not going to claim that unforeseeable events can be foreseen. <laughs> By definition, they can't. So is there a role for field validation in your framework? There is, and we actually have a specific section in the paper which addresses this. I, I do see personally, I'm not going to speak on behalf of all my co-authors now, I'm going further than the, the paper states, but um, I think that whenever we make predictions on the basis of laboratory data, we should have in place a monitoring system to make sure that on those hopefully few occasions when we, we're wrong in our predictions, we pick that up very quickly. Uh, and this is no exception to that. I think we're making predictions on the basis of quite uh, complex population models. The complexity in this case, I think, is much more likely to make them more accurate than the systems we currently have in place. But we will be wrong occasionally. And so field monitoring is the primary way in which we pick up those mistakes. Now, how do you see the process improving over time? I think there's a political component that needs to be addressed, first of all, because there does appear to be a mismatch between what the regulation states and what the guidance that is in support of the regulation seems to require. That needs to be resolved between the different stakeholders. I think the emphasis needs to be on the, the actual words in the legal document, and the regulation is, is the law, whereas the guidance is just supposed to be supporting the law. But until that's sorted out, we've got a little bit of, a, of an issue with understanding exactly what it is that the regulation requires to be effectively implemented. And this regulation only came into force in October last year, so we're in the early days yet. On the assumption that these political issues can be resolved, and I think they can be, fairly easily with good faith on all sides, then the next step is to apply the models for birds and mammals, which we already have, to develop further models for other vertebrate groups. With fish, we're almost there with some of the models. Not quite there with um, reptiles and amphibians. You know, we're talking about maybe two to five years to come up with the remaining models for some other groups. But some of these models we can apply immediately using the framework that we've proposed. So I, I would go with what we've currently got whilst speedily developing what we need. We're ready to roll with, um, with some of these models, but we need, first of all, to resolve this slight discrepancy between what the regulation says and what the guidance says. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. Jenny, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to Mark Crane discuss his article, Assessing the Population Relevance of Endocrine Disrupting Effects for Non-Target Vertebrates Exposed to Plant Protection Products. Access the article along with its companion learned discourse in the March 2019 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.